Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Killer Stories. I'm your host, Bobby Holmes. I feel like it's been a little while since I had a solo recording session. I took a week off over Easter, and last week I was with the lovely Lorraine Purdon from Once Upon a Nightmare and her new podcast coming out May 4th, American Murder Stories. This week I'm covering the case of Sharon Kinney, also known as La Pistolera. You're going to hear how awful my Spanish is. I cannot roll my R's, so just bear with me. (laughs) Her nickname comes from the fact that she murdered three people on three different occasions using a pistol. Let's get a little background. She was born Sharon Elizabeth Hall, November 30th, 1939. Sharon grew up in the small town of Independence, Missouri. She spent most of her childhood there, but in junior high, her family moved to Washington State. It was short-lived. The Halls moved back to Missouri by the time Sharon turned 15 years old. She got a taste of what it was like outside of her small hometown, and she made it her main goal in life to leave for good. When Sharon was 16, she attended a mixer hosted by the local LDS church. Sharon was a very beautiful girl and could have had her pick from the teenage boys at the mixer, but she wasn't looking for a boy. She wanted a man, someone who could not only support her financially, but more importantly, get her out of independence. She had her eyes set on 22-year-old James Kinney, a college student home for summer break. The fact that he was getting a college degree meant he would soon land a job and... Sorry for being stereotypical here, but ready to settle down. I can attest to living in Utah. Typically, people within the LDS faith do not waste time when it comes to marriage. Not just proposing, but sometimes engagements last just a few months before tying the knot. Sharon approached James and struck up a conversation. He told her he was a student at Brigham Young University in Utah. Sharon saw this as her opportunity. She lied to James and told him that she was 20. Because even in the 1950s, a 22-year-old dating a 16-year-old might get some side eyes. She also lied about being a college student herself. 
when in reality she was about to enter her junior year of high school. She led him to believe that she was also a member of the LDS church, basically said all the right things to make him fall for her. James was a virgin and vowed to stay that way until he was married. Sharon claimed to be a virgin too, saving herself for a man who truly loved her. And that was a lie. She was a master manipulator and used her sex appeal to get what she wanted. Once the two started dating, Sharon came on to him stronger and stronger each time they saw each other, until James caved and had premarital sex with Sharon. This was a game changer. Now she had him wrapped around her little finger. Once she had control over James, her true colors began to show. She wasn't sweet as pie 24-7. She would have angry outbursts yelling at James for the littlest of things. By the end of summer, James headed back to BYU and broke up with Sharon. She wasn't the perfect woman he thought she was. But Sharon couldn't let James get away. Just a few weeks into his first semester, Sharon wrote him a letter telling him that she was pregnant. James felt obligated to marry Sharon. I mean, she was going to be the mother of his child. The problem was he didn't actually love her. In the end, he decided to move back to Independence and ask Sharon to be his wife. He thought it was the right thing to do in the situation. They married in October of 1956. They had just met three months prior over the summer. There was still a lot to learn about each other like the fact that Sharon was 16 years old. Yeah, when they married, James still believed that she was 20. Also, she wasn't pregnant. James never found out the truth about her pregnancy, though. She faked a miscarriage shortly after the wedding. So sad because he took the news of losing a child really hard. He did eventually discover her true age and that she was not a virgin when they met, He was furious and found it grounds for divorce, but his parents reminded him that divorce was against their beliefs. He made the decision to marry Sharon and now has an obligation to see it through. She may have faked her first pregnancy, but within the first year of marriage, the couple welcomed a baby girl into the world. This was not the life Sharon pictured. Not only was she still in Independence, Missouri, but now she was a teenage mom, James was at work most of the day, leaving her to care for the baby, and she wasn't much of a housewife. She felt lonely and often had her mother come watch the baby while she snuck out with other men, one being a boy she went to high school with, 18-year-old John Boldis. Sharon and John's affair typically consisted of them spending time together on Lover's Lane, James became suspicious of her infidelity, but honestly, he was so detached from her at this point, he didn't even care. Until she dropped another bombshell. She was pregnant. Again. Whether the baby was his or not, James raised the boy as his own. But this did not bring them any closer. Both Sharon and James wanted out of the marriage. James was supposed to be Sharon's ticket out of the small town of Independence. She was still there and pretty bitter about it. Sharon told James she would leave if she could keep the house. Not to live there, obviously. She planned to sell it for a profit. But strangely, she wanted to split up the children. She would keep their daughter and James take their son. 
And on top of that, she requested a check for $1,000, which was a lot of money in the 1950s. James said he would think about her unconventional offer. James spoke to his parents, who once again strongly disagreed with him getting a divorce. It was a sin, and not only that, but it would make the Kinney family look bad. The more he thought about his situation, the more pissed off he became. He went home that night and told Sharon that he did want a divorce, but planned to leave her with nothing. No house, no kids, and no $1,000 check. She was furious. He walked upstairs to bed while Sharon sat and fumed. James was asleep lying on his side when Sharon pointed his own pistol at the back of his head and pulled the trigger. He didn't die instantly. He turned over in the bed, shocked to see Sharon holding his pistol. She watched the life drain out of him, and instead of dialing 911, she called James's father. She put on her best act as wife in hysterics. She told him, and I can't even believe she would be this cruel, that her two-year-old daughter accidentally shot James. Yeah. She murdered her husband and blamed it on her innocent toddler. She hung up and called an ambulance. James was still alive when they arrived, but died shortly after, which she knew would happen. She only called for help to cover her tracks. Sharon gave her statement to police, and right off the bat, they thought it sounded suspicious. The gun wasn't that light. It was a stretch to think a two-year-old could hold it up and squeeze the trigger. To try and prove Sharon's story was impossible, they reenacted the scene. Yes, they handed a gun to a two-year-old. Her dad must have taught her early because to their surprise, she held it up with ease. She also knew how to release the safety and fire the gun, which thankfully was unloaded. This made it difficult to disprove that her daughter accidentally shot her sleeping father. I feel like swabbing both Sharon and her daughter's hands for gunpowder residue would have settled things, but who knows what forensics were like then. James's parents believed her lie. They invited Sharon and the kids to come stay with them until she got back on her feet. And this was honestly the last thing Sharon wanted to do, but to make her lie more believable, she reluctantly stayed that night with her in-laws. But the very next day, Sharon got out of there. In fact, once James's death was formally declared accidental, Sharon told her in-laws how she really felt. She despised them. She went to the police station to collect James's pistol. Because there wasn't a murder charge, she said it was her property and demanded it back. Police didn't see it that way. They found it strange that she would want the gun that killed her husband and denied her request. They were still suspicious of Sharon's involvement. She cashed out James's life insurance policies and bought a flashy new car. Yeah, a new blue Thunderbird screams grieving widow. A new car wasn't the only thing Sharon splurged her money on. Now that she had the equivalent of $200,000 in today's money, she was living life to the fullest. Upscale dinners, beauty products, and clothes, she went all out. Sharon did not waste any time moving on with another man, the car salesman from the dealership, Walter Jones. Sharon was a widow and technically free to sleep with whomever she wanted, but Walter was married. 
Just like her former boyfriends, Sharon and Walter spent their time together on Lover's Lane. Since she wasn't able to get James's pistol back from the police, Sharon had one of her ex-lovers buy her a new one. He went by the book and registered the gun under Sharon Kinney, but she asked him to remove her name from the registry. The guy found it strange, but did as requested without question. As I said earlier, Sharon used sex to get what she wanted. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sharon and Walter continued their affair until she shared the news that she was pregnant and the baby was his. Sharon wanted Walter to leave his wife and be with her, but he went into defensive mode. He called her a liar, not believing that she was actually pregnant, and it wouldn't be her first faked pregnancy. Walter basically cut ties and wanted nothing more to do with Sharon, but she had other plans. She called Walter's wife, Patricia. Sharon told Patricia that her husband was having an affair. They scheduled a meeting to further discuss it. A distraught Patricia agreed to meet Sharon to learn the details of her husband's infidelity. Sharon picked up Patricia in town and they went for a drive. She explained that her sister was the one sleeping with Walter. Patricia wasn't too surprised. Apparently, this was not the first time Walter was unfaithful. She thanked Sharon for the information, but they had children together. She would talk to Walter and attempt to work things out. This was not going according to Sharon's plan. This news was supposed to be devastating. She assumed Patricia would be hurt and want to leave Walter. Time for plan B. Oddly enough, Sharon drove Patricia to Lover's Lane. She put the car in park and asked her to step out of the car. She pointed her pistol at Patricia, announces that she's the one sleeping with Walter, and fired the gun four times. Afterwards, Sharon dragged Patricia's body, attempting to conceal her in the weeds. Walter became worried when Patricia didn't come home that night and eventually reported her missing to police. He called Patricia's work and discovered that earlier that day, a co-worker drove her to meet someone downtown. She described the woman as young and beautiful. Walter's heart sank when he realized she was talking about Sharon. He got in his car and frantically drove to see her. Walter threatened her, saying if he found out that she hurt Patricia, he would hurt her. Sharon swore up and down that she didn't. She admitted to confessing their affair, but says she dropped Patricia off near their home. Walter knew Patricia wouldn't abandon her children or leave without an explanation. After Walter left, Sharon called up one of her other side pieces, John Boldus. She asked him to come looking for the missing woman. He agreed because, well, as I said previously, Sharon had her ways of getting what she wanted. They drove around town for hours with no luck. Imagine that. And then the moment John was waiting for, they ended up on Lover's Lane. As John was putting the moves on Sharon, she pointed to the weeds and said something was in there. 
John didn't see anything, and to show Sharon she was just seeing things, he got out of the car and walked closer. To his surprise, there was a female body lying just inside the weeds. Sharon convinced John to call police on his own and leave out the fact that she was with him. Red flags should have been going up, but she simply explained that she was flirtatious with Patricia's husband and didn't want to get blamed for her death. John took Sharon home and reported his findings to police. And of course, John became a person of interest. To take the heat off of himself, he snitched on Sharon. James Kinney's death was still fresh in their brains, and Sharon Kinney's name is coming up in another murder investigation? This couldn't be a coincidence. Especially when they find out Patricia's cause of death. Gunshot from a pistol. Sharon was arrested under suspicion of Patricia's murder. She was the last person to see her alive. She owned the type of gun used and had motive being that she was Walter's mistress. Here is where they messed up. They charged Sharon for the murder of Patricia and her late husband, James Kinney. Yes, it seemed obvious she was responsible, but they didn't have any hard evidence. And a jury full of 12 men thought she was too pretty to be a killer. They found her not guilty for the murder of Patricia Jones. When the ruling was read out, Sharon walked up to the jury and kissed each one of the men on the cheek. During the trial for her husband, James Kinney's murder, they made sure to put at least one woman on the jury. She was the voice of reason and convinced the others that Sharon was guilty. Her children went to live with James's parents while she was sent to prison. Her attorneys appealed her conviction due to multiple mistakes made in her trial, and the appeal was granted. Listen how ridiculous. Her second trial, a mistrial. Third trial was a hung jury. A fourth trial was scheduled, but while she was out on bail, she was basically free to do as she pleased. They did freeze all of her assets, and Sharon had to make a formal request to withdraw any of her money at the courthouse. One day, while filing a request, she met a handsome young man named Francis Samuel Puglese. He was at the courthouse filing for unemployment. Even though Sharon was plastered all over the news, he had no idea who she was. She won him over with her charm and good looks. They fell hard for each other and wanted to take a romantic trip to Mexico. Sharon's lawyer advised her not to leave the country, but technically her bail did not list that as a stipulation, so off she went. Things sure have changed. Pretty sure now you can't even leave the state. Her and Frances boarded a bus to Mexico, but this trip turned out to be less than romantic. First of all, these two barely knew each other, so now, being around each other 24-7, they began to get on each other's nerves and bicker. Their cheap hotel was infested with cockroaches, and the very first night in Mexico City, they both got food poisoning. Lovely start to the vacation. As soon as the food poisoning wore off, Sharon packed her bags and walked to a five-star hotel where she sat at the bar in hopes of meeting someone new. And that she did. Francisco Paredes Ordonez approached Sharon and the two shared a few drinks before he invited her up to his room. Once in his room, Sharon's side of the story is pretty unbelievable because we all know she was kind of, well, 
a slut. She said that Francisco tried to rape her. And I have no idea why a woman on appeal from a convicted murder would be allowed to possess a gun, the very same gun that she used to kill Patricia Jones. But she pulled out her pistol and shot Francisco in the chest, killing him instantly. A hotel employee heard the gunshot and came flying into the room. Sharon instinctively fired a shot at him, grazing his shoulder. Luckily, that didn't slow him down and he was able to detain Sharon and call the police. The Mexican authorities did a background check on Sharon and found out that she was previously charged with two murders and currently out on bail. They didn't believe her story of attempted rape for a second. They think she was actually robbing Francisco at gunpoint. Ballistics proved that the gun used to kill Francisco was an exact match for the one used in the murder of Patricia Jones. Unfortunately, due to double jeopardy laws, she could not go to trial for that particular case again. But now she was in Mexico facing murder charges, and they do things a bit differently. There wasn't a jury, just a single judge who decided her fate, and he found her guilty of murder, sentencing her to 10 years in Iztapalapa Women's Prison. Within the first year, Sharon appealed her case, but this backfired when three judges decided that her ruling was actually too lenient and extended the 10 years to 13 without the ability to appeal again. The press in Mexico is who dubbed her La Pistolera. To them, she was a silly foreigner who obviously had no understanding of their country's justice system. She became laughable front-page news. December 7, 1969, the Iztapalapa Women's Prison held an annual visitation day. During this visitation, the prison lost power for a few hours. When the power came back on, Sharon was gone. A search was conducted on the grounds and surrounding area, but she was nowhere to be found. She potentially had already been on the run for hours. To this day, Sharon Kinney has never been found. There is still a warrant out for her arrest in Kansas City 50 years after her escape. Could she really have escaped without a trace? There are theories that have been suggested over the years. The prison was understaffed and she took advantage during the power outage and just escaped. Another is that she seduced or bribed a male guard, which we all know is a very real possibility. A few days before her escape, she was visited by a man. Some believe he was hired by the family of Francisco to help her escape. But once she was out, he killed her in revenge and disposed of her body. I'll admit that would make sense as to why she was never seen again. Or maybe she escaped to a remote location to live out the rest of her life. Something tells me if she was still alive, we would have heard about another Sharon Kinney killing. While she was in prison, she was frequently visited by journalists to tell her story. She claimed her innocence in every scenario, claiming, quote, I'm just an ordinary girl. This became the title of a book written about her crimes by James C. Hayes, published in 1997. And in 2016, Heather Fox wrote, Serial Killin' Slut, The True Story of Sharon Kinney. Has a nice ring to it. That's it for today's episode. Now it's time for a few listener shout outs. 
first Apple user Grumpling who gave me a five-star review. I love this channel because the episodes are long enough for my drive so I can listen to an entire case without needing to pick up later. I like Bobby's commentaries and the background she provides of the characters. I only started listening a week ago and already ran out of episodes to listen to, anxiously awaiting new episodes. Commander Mama 14 gave five stars and said, wonderful. I binge listened and loved all of it. And finally, McKay K. That's four Y's in McKay and three in K. They gave me a five-star rating and review titled, You Literally Make My Week. I listen to your podcast every day at work. It helps me stay focused, LOL. And this is in all caps. Thank you for your stories, Bobby. I love you. Explanation point heart emoji. (laughs) That is my first proclamation of love from a listener. So you made my week, McKay. Okay. Thanks to all who listen and support the show. Speaking of supporting the show, you can visit buymeacoffee.com slash killer stories for a one-time donation, or you can shop killer stories merch from Freedom Street Boutique. The link to shop can be found in my link tree in the show notes. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Killer Stories Podcast, and I'm on Twitter at Killer Stories PC. Email any story suggestions to Killer Stories Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this has been a killer story. <laughs>